0: Lopate at large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Ellis Coase writes in his latest book, Race and Reckoning, From Founding Fathers to Today's Disruptors, that to, quote, understand the current efforts to disenfranchise likely Democratic voters, you have to understand what happened at the end of Reconstruction. That's when white conservative Southerners were returned to power and introduced an era of Jim Crow laws that unfortunately continue to have an impact today. His book is published by HarperCollins Amistad and brings Ellis Coase, who is one of the foremost commentators on race, class, poverty, and prejudice in America today, to our show now. Welcome back. I am delighted to be here,
1: Leonard. I'm happy to be with you.
0: You begin by stating that we're currently facing an undeclared war on our democracy that would have been unfathomable a few years back. Is this something new or has it just become more apparent recently? Because you, mm-hmm. you've headed your introduction, the war over who we are.
1: I think it's both things at the same time. I mean, I think there are new elements to it, but I think that the underlying reality is something that we as a country have struggled with pretty much since the founding. I think the new element is that, and, and when I say struggle with since the founding, what I mean is that. Beginning even before we became a nation, and um, beginning with the arrival of the first people who eventually became slaves in America, we wrestled with this question of equality, this question of um, who deserves what rights uh, in this country. But the and and, and the Civil War radically you sort of shaped that discussion as well. But what's what the new element is demographics. Um, one of the things that we celebrated many of us celebrated at any rate when when Barack Obama became president was the fact that we had suddenly we had finally matured to the point as a country where we could elect a person irrespective of race yet to the presidency but for many people it was very frightening because it signified the beginning of of a a minority takeover i mean the the uh, Demographers have been writing for years about the United States going through a transition and about at some point in the 1840s or 1850s, depending upon what projections that you, not in the 19, between the, in, I'm sorry, the 2040s or the 2050s, depending upon what projection you look at, the United States will become supposedly a majority minority. I mean, I think that's nonsense for several reasons we can go into if you want to, but a lot of people have become very shaken by that. And and I think that that has uh, motivated a big movement um, and including the invasion of the Capitol on January 6th. I mean, one study looked at that and since all that many of the people who were there were motivated by this fear of, uh, of a minority takeover They were white the, nationalists Well, they were white nationalists and who have been, um, sort of addicted to this great replacement theory nonsense that, that they are about to be replaced uh, by people of color. And why, and, and, and why I say you need to understand the reconstruction era to understand what's happening now is because many of the sentiments were identical. What happened then? The the issue was a little bit different. It wasn't that the South was afraid that it was going to become majority minority, but it was suddenly, well, there was certainly a great deal of fear about this era in which people who had formerly been enslaved were were, suddenly becoming prominent members of society, becoming members of Congress, uh, beginning to vote, and beginning to reshape the um, the states and the land, and they responded with violence, they responded with anger, they responded with outrage. And if you look at many of the arguments from the post-Reconstruction and the Reconstruction era uh, for limiting votes, um, for um, maintaining a, a sort of a white rule, they're identical to the arguments that, that, that come out of the Mata crowd.
0: But it's not – you don't just talk about the legacy of slavery. You write about the Trail of Tears, but also the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, the ransacking right. of East St. Louis by white mobs in 1917, the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, the anti-Mexican zoot suit riots in 1943 Los Angeles, and you link – former President Trump to a eugenicist who once complained that Latin American countries furnish very undesirable immigrants.
1: right yeah I mean the, the quote is almost exactly the same as this as a quote from the 1920s yeah, during during that debate um, It's interesting, Leonard. I mean like many books, the book that I wrote is not quite the book that I started out to write. Um, I started out with the idea that I would do a book that explained how we, as a nation, ended up in a place where we thought it mm-hmm. proper to elect someone like Donald Trump as president, and that in, immediately gets you into the issues that divide us and and how we came to those. Well, one thing I decided as I started doing research for the book and and, and started actually writing was that the fundamental divide in America has always been race, really. I mean, there are other divides, obviously, and there are are other other causes of polarization. But the one consistent thing, if you look through American history, beginning with, starting with the beginning um, with the first um, Nationalization Act uh, in 1790, which limited uh, nationalization to those who were, those persons who were free and white, uh, is that we have struggled with Issues of race, we struggled with the with with, with, the, with our defining contradiction, where we declared that all men were created equal, but we didn't quite mean all men. We meant all white men, presumably, um, and that has bedeviled us throughout the years, and and has and has it's expressed itself in various ways. I mean, it expressed itself early on with our decision not to essentially exclude Native Americans or, or Indians, you know, from the American population, and, and 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 there was a dramatic uprooting of Native Americans. Uh, it continued into the eighteen into the um, eighteen eighty two exclusion act. I guess you say well, we basically decided that we're going to limit or exclude you know Chinese Americans, and then we we completed that task in the early nineteen hundreds with the immigration acts of nineteen twenty 1920 and nineteen twenty four when we effectively when you locked the door to pretty much all Asians coming in and and we've, and we've and we're suddenly and we're certainly struggled on in an ongoing sense with how we treat African Americans and the the end of the uh, civil war was both a, a, a time for well, it was both a great opportunity and it was also a time when many people perceived a great danger and the opportunity was that yeah, with the passage of the Fifteenth Amendment, with the you know, which which gave blacks a vote, with the uh, commitment of the Republicans who were then called Black Republicans, interestingly <laughs> enough, because they were con- they were considered to be too sympathetic to Black Americans, uh, you had a point in history where there was a concerted effort to allow blacks to become full members of the American family. Uh, The Reconstruction was the method by which that was supposed to happen. Um, The end of Reconstruction was the ending of that dream, and it took us over 100 years for that dream to come back again.
0: Well, let's go back a bit. You begin your history at Jamestown, the introduction of African slavery to the American colonies. How much can we claim that the enslavement of blacks and the removal of Native Americans from their homelands were both efforts to secure white supremacy?
1: Well, I think the enslavement of blacks was not specifically in, in an effort to uh, secure white supremacy. I think it was a um, it was a society taking advantage of a group that um, was particularly powerless. Because the I mean, we had a choice to make um, beginning in in the in the 1600s as to who was going to work the fields, who was going to be, you know, what what our labor force was going to look like. Um, And originally it it looked like it might be largely European. I mean, there were people who came over as indentured servants. Uh, and for a period of time you know they would work the land and then they would presumably if all went well they would get a little plot of their own or some other, or, or resources of their own and get on and, and get to live their own life
0: you point out and that I- vanderbilt was, uh, the vanderbilt family began as indentured servants in the new york era, when the new york area was new netherlands so in, indentured servitude actually uh, be, began in in this Area before slavery, or simultaneously it, it began, with it?
1: It began before slavery, but it, but it, but, it, but 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 not that long before slavery, because slavery was something that sort of came in stages, you know. And originally, it, and it actually, historically, it's not quite clear uh, with the first um, Africans who were brought to George uh, Georgetown in eighteen nineteen, whether. What what percentage of those people began as, as slaves and what percentage began as indentured servants? We do know that many of them were indentured servants. Um, and, and were they and,
0: freed as the uh, the white indentured servants were?
1: Uh, some were. I mean, there was a, a, a very um, prominent one uh, who was um, named Antonio. Um, and he was not only freed, um, he ended up, Getting uh, indentured servants and slaves of his own, mm-hmm. um, and was actually taken to court. One um, of one of the, one of the uh, more interesting cases of that he was actually taken to court by one of his uh, enslaved black persons, um, who um, thought that his term of uh, in, of um, to, was over, uh, and um, Eventually, uh, um, you know, I mean, the the, you know, well, he, and he ended up uh, rather than facing that court case, he ended up selling the guy and freeing the guy, basically and allowing him to work somewhere else, and then went to court again and got his quote slave back. Um, so you had a case, and it was in Virginia, of course. You had a case of the court system awarding a black slave to a, a, a black former indentured servant. So, so there were certainly Several examples. Of well, there are people. so
0: many. There are so many contradictions here. Uh, i always have wondered how Thomas Jefferson, who re- wrote "All Men Are Created Equal," justified owning over six hundred black slaves.
1: Well, I think he justified it because he did not see uh, Africans as men. I mean, he saw them as creatures not that far above apes. And he and he writes about this at length in his only book length uh, treatise, uh, which is Notes from Virginia, where he compares um, African Americans or, or Black Americans to orangutans, you know. And so, in his eyes, yeah, you know, it, it was not a contradiction to enslave these creatures who were incapable of uh, absorbing art, who were incapable of of actually loving, who were incapable of many things that humans were were capable of. I mean, interestingly enough...
0: Well, just let me interrupt for a second. That was before our DNA revealed that all humans are very close to apes. We share, I think, something like 96 (laughs) or something percent of of our DNA with them.
1: Well, of course. I mean, science back... um, in the uh, 1700s was, of course, quite different than it is now. Uh, and, and there was no real knowledge of DNA back then. But based on his own observations, uh, Jefferson concluded that uh, Blacks were basically never going to be a civilized group of people. And interestingly enough, I mean, he had much uh, higher thoughts or, or, uh, about the Native Americans. He, he thought that the Native Americans uh, or uh, brighter and um, more independent, he just did not think culturally that they would fit in America. So he, so he, so he sort of endorsed the removal of uh, of Native Americans from white territories, and the enslavement of blacks because he didn't quite believe that blacks were men. Now, I mean,
0: throughout our nation's history. Numerous <laughs> racialized decisions have solidified the fates of generations of people. Even citizens of color weren't even non-slave states complicit because of the requirements of the Fugitive Slave Act.
1: Well, the Fugitive Slave Act, which was uh, passed in the 1850s, was interesting. Um, I mean, it, it, was, it was it was part of a compromise, um, and it was part of a compromise. Um, about what the future of America was going to look like, and and whether uh, future states that were formed would be slave or would be free, you know, and it was decided that some would be one and some would be the other, but the um, but one but one of the um, compromises that was made, you know, in working out that compromise, which largely dealt with the California and territories and the Western lands, it was that um, it was agreed that um, even people who fled one state uh, and went to another, we're talking about black Americans at this point, where there was no slavery um, could be arrested and taken back. And, and, and in fact, uh, federal officials would aid in this and and that became a huge cause and it became a huge cause because many Northern states and certainly uh, many abolitionists did not like this idea of people being deputized to force people into enslavement once they they had left.
0: Now we're talking about that (laughs) in terms of abortion, but that's a whole other issue. I do have to tell my audience that they're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. And my guest is Ellis Coase, whose latest book is Race and Reckoning from Founding Fathers to Today's Disruptors published by Amistad. Uh, continue what you were saying. I'm sorry. It's just the FCC requires I, 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 me to do that.
1: Oh no, no, and, and absolutely, you, you have to sort of uh, pay the piper, so to speak. <laughs> um, but the 1850s were just a period of turmoil because that was also was in 1957, was when the Dred Scott decision came down, and and mm-hmm. and it was and it related exactly to the set of issues that that um, but, were epitomized by the Fugitive Slave Act, which was whether an enslaved person who had gone into free territory was thereby made free by going into free territory. And the uh, uh, the Supreme Court uh, decided, no, um, that, that was not the case, you know, and, and, and ordered Trescott um, to be held in, in slavery again.
0: But even today, we're dealing with some of these things. You write about the real-life case that inspired Tony Morrison's novel, Beloved, which you point out figured in a campaign ad for Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin as uh, one to be banned in public schools. Uh, Glenn Youngkin, who's now considering a run for the presidency in 2024.
1: Right. I mean, the, the problem with our history is that and when I say our history, I mean, our history as Americans is that there are a lot of things in that history that are somewhat unpleasant. There are a lot of things that that um, yeah we would rather many of us would, would rather not face. And we have reached a point in this country now where a lot of politicians, particularly on the right and particularly in the south, wish to sort of forget about this whole era and wish to just erase the whole era, you know, the, the whole period of enslavement from American history, uh, because they think that it uh, somehow means that the country or the writers of these history books are looking down on white people or blaming white people or something crazy like that.
0: Well, a recent but, survey found that many Southerners say the Civil War wasn't over slavery. They call it the War of the Northern Invasion.
1: Yeah, well, there's, that's that was part of, of what A lot of people do. I mean, part of the rewrite, the rewriting of history and and it happened immediately after the Civil War, the rewriting began. Um, And the rewriting basically in that rewriting, uh, the Civil War was, first of all, it was fought over state rights and it was fought because of an invasion by the North that that wanted to violate state rights. Um, But also um, it was an era, you know, that, that the argument was that the short period where blacks were in congress in the senate and and were elected office was disastrous because blacks were incompetent to govern uh and they really wanted to spend all their time um facilitating the rape of white women and crazy things like that um and there was a uh you know there, there there was a total rehabilitation of the south so that the whole period of you know the Civil War became a fight of Southern virtue, uh, as opposed to a fight to maintain slavery, and slavery really had nothing to do with it. I mean, it's it's it's, it's really ridiculous when you think about it. But that was the way that they rewrote history, and and, and you're and you're seeing that again now, with all of these efforts to try to ban books um, that discuss race in America, and under this nonsense that these that they're teaching critical race theory. And that critical race theory is a noxious doctrine that turns people against each other and that turns whites and that turns blacks against whites. I mean, first of all, very few of the things, if any, that they want to ban actually do teach critical race theory, which is a fairly... um, in some ways, you know, boring way of looking at at history, um, but it's also very complicated and very much interact. You know, and, and, and very much interlaced with understandings of the law. That is nothing you would be teaching um, to grade school kids or or to uh, grammar school kids or even to high school kids. So, the, so the so the whole argument is based in is, is rooted in in fantasy and nonsense, but it's essentially a way of saying these bad things in our history never happened. And the reason that's so important is because if you don't want to address the impact of history, if you don't want to address these bad things that happened, you just say they never did. <laughs> um, and that and, and that sort of uh, allows you to walk away from the fact that we still have ghettos in our country. It allows you to walk away from the fact that we still have discrimination in our country. It allows you to walk from all the unpleasant facts, you know, that have rendered uh, African-Americans and to some extent other people of color um, have relegated them to a lower economic status and a lower social status than other Americans.
0: Weren't there uh, attempts even before the Civil War to to rectify the situation? But Andrew Johnson vetoed a civil rights bill in 1866. Yeah, I mean
1: Andrew Johnson, who who uh, obviously um, followed Abraham Lincoln, um, was an interesting guy. I mean, he was a Southerner, um, but he ran with Lincoln as part of a unity ticket. But he didn't really believe the things that Lincoln believed. I mean, he he did believe um, that slavery should be abolished, you know, and and he did support that, but. He did not particularly believe that blacks ought to be allowed to vote. He did not particularly believe that anything should be done to rectify slavery. So when it came to the institutions um, that were set up to deal with the fact that you had people who for generations had not been allowed to get an education, had not been allowed to own any property, had not been allowed to do anything that free men were allowed to do. When you when you got to the to the to the point of the laws that were that were uh, aimed at making them whole, he said no. He said no. You know, he said you know these civil rights laws, and again this this, this echoes the arguments of today. He said these civil rights laws are going to give blacks rights that whites don't even have. You know, so no, we're not going to have those, uh, and no, you know, we're not going to have. Um, a Freeman's Bureau, which is set up to help blacks in ways that um, that whites aren't being helped, and we're not going to have this nonsense of giving these people land because you know we don't do that for whites, and and which is one um, an example of just ignorance of history because we had several laws sure. which allowed whites, and we have going to, to, and and like going to get
0: to that in just a moment because we're I'm, I want to talk about Native Americans. <laughs> Weren't many Native Americans also enslaved? Uh, Uh, And Jefferson noticed um, that valuable land was in the hands of Native Americans. But if they wished to pursue their lives as hunters, they might be better off out west in some, what he said, vacant lands of the United States where game is abundant. How long did that offer last?
1: Uh, well, the offer lasted for a while. I mean, in the sense that, um, I mean, that it was originally made by Thomas Jefferson, but then it was followed through by others. But I mean, but the the idea was and, and especially once gold was discovered, was 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 discovered in Georgia and some other lands. And then the whole idea of keeping Native Americans in some of the southern territories where they were became uh, just not desirable uh, from the perspective of many whites. And they decided to essentially take that land. Um, and to um, and to from the Cherokee and other tribes, and to and to send those tribes out to um, the western territories. Well, what was like the, the
0: significance Pope. of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in 1831 in the case Cherokee Nation versus Georgia?
1: Well, basically, uh, it was interesting. I mean, the, I mean, the uh, Supreme Court found yeah. in favor of the, of the Cherokee, yeah, who yeah, who were who were basically screaming that they were being exploited uh, and their lands were being taken. And the um, Supreme Court decided that even though the Cherokee were right, um, they didn't have any jurisdiction as the Supreme Court because the relationship of the Indian nations to the rest of America was more like that of a foreign nation as opposed to American citizens. So that that, uh, decision was just ignored. Um, and, the, and, and it sort of paved the way for the, for the removal of Indians from those territories, and they were forced out west. Um, many were killed, um, and it was, um, it was a clash of many things, but, but mostly it was greed on the part of the uh, southern um, residents who wanted the gold and wanted the land that the Native Americans had.
0: And so they just kept on being pushed further and further away. and They were pushed further and further away. The Indian Wars, uh, which we could call uh, racially motivated?
1: Well, they were certainly ethnically motivated, you know, and and, and racially motivated as well. I mean, mean, this is when many whites saw a... um, so the struggle and their struggle in fairly simple terms. So it was, the land was either gonna be theirs or it was gonna be Native Americans. Uh, and they decided it was gonna be theirs. The idea of integrating um, and fairly integrating Native Americans did not strike many people as an option. Um, and so what you had was a series of actions that Destroyed many and many Indian tribes um, that forced other people off the lands, and, and even once once they moved out to some of these lands, you know, in mm-hmm. in the in, in Kansas and, and elsewhere, um, their the territory was was taken from them there as well, so, and and there and and, and much of their property was encroached upon. So you had a sort of creeping um, encroachment that went on for decades.
0: They were forced to go further and further west. Exactly. Um, was the end of Reconstruction and the onset of Jim Crow a major turning point in the story that we're telling here?
1: It was a huge turning point. I mean, and, and it, was, it was sort of um, initiated, or not so much initiated, uh, but marked um, by the election of 1876, you know, um, the hayes the election. And... Um, it was an election where, interestingly enough, um, Tilden won the popular vote um, and seemed on its way to win the electoral vote. And not unlike today, uh, there was a hue and cry over that election and over how the electoral votes were going. And the um, Congress a commission, you know, appointed by Congress. Effectively decided to award the a race to Rutherford Hayes, who wasn't a Republican, until he was a Democrat in that race. And in, in those days, the Republicans were supposedly the racially enlightened groups who were who were behind the Reconstruction. The party of Lincoln, the party of Lincoln, yes. Yeah. but the price for that was that they was that Hayes essentially had to give up on Reconstruction. Uh, he had to take the troops out of the South, and, and of course, the South was not going to comply without troops uh, with these rules that were, in, um, that were enacted to empower blacks. Uh, so he was awarded the election, probably an election that he did not win. Um, and the South was given permission, in effect, to turn his back on the efforts that had been being made. Over the last over um, a decade, um, to try to restore African Americans or try to you know to some level of um, of equality, but and, but in, in
0: many practice in many cases, didn't blacks who'd been enslaved before the Civil War become enslaved in practice after emancipation?
1: Um, yes, absolutely, uh, they did, and that was because the South was allowed to do what it wanted to do and the south of course fought the civil war It never wanted to see black equality um and once they were given freedom to do what they wanted to do i mean they never wanted blacks to vote um they effectively took the vote away um by all kinds of poll rules and, and, and and other rules that basically barred blacks from voting um general general sherman had had uh, passed and ha- had um, enacted an order, which uh, took some of the lands from the white rebels and gave it to enslaved, formerly enslaved persons. Uh, they revoked that, that was revoked. Um, every effort that had been made, you know, the, the, the KKK uh, for the first time, you know, came into flower as the protector of um, white women, white civility and white ways of life and um black codes were enacted you know which made it illegal for blacks to do any number of things and made it illegal for blacks to, to gather in certain places uh it made it uh illegal for blacks to change employers in certain circumstances um they passed a, a, a series of policies laws and enacted practices that made it impossible for many blacks to earn a living. You know, so so many folks who had been working as slaves um, became um, Mm -hmm. basically, um, you know, tenant farmers and and things of this nature, where they had the ability to to raise their own crops, um, but they were basically cheated out out of their ability to make a profit. (laughs) <laughs> so, yes, I mean, they they were they were not technically enslaved anymore, but in terms of the restrictions on their lives, in terms of the restrictions on their aspirations, uh, in terms of their restrictions um, on passing anything to their children, they might as well have been enslaved.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. ¡Pru! conversation with Ellis Coase. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Race and Reckoning from Founding Fathers to Today's Disruptors. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show i be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number two WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Ellis Coase, whose book is published by Amistad. We've been talking mostly about the legacy of slavery, but— um, didn't immigration officials try to sort out other racial classifications the uh, the 1870 national naturalization act allowed blacks to become naturalized citizens but barred other non-whites from naturalization and as a result weren't most asians barred from entering the country
1: oh yeah well, the, well there were two things that, that 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 happened one was whether they could become citizens and and certainly the the naturalization act <laughs> which was not really amended um, to apply to other non-white groups, uh, kept most non-whites from being naturalized citizens. Until the 1900s. But
0: the the determination of what is a non-white is interesting. Richard K. Campbell, Woodrow Wilson's commissioner of the U.S. Bureau of Naturalization, held that, quote, Syrians and their racial kindred were yellow, not white, and that they were barred, therefore, from naturalization. And then even earlier, the New York Times asked in 1909, is the Turk a white man?
1: Yeah, um, and, until the modern immigration law, and, and we're talking about two two different things. So let's so let me try to separate them. One, we're talking about the ability to immigrate. Uh, non whites could have limited immigration, but they could not become citizens. Um, immigration was restricted by several restrictive acts, you know, passing beginning uh, with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, Naturalization was something different and and, and as you correctly pointed out. And so there were many cases in the 1800s and even the early 1900s with various people from India, from Syria, as you mentioned, uh, from Turkey, uh, from elsewhere who in trying to become U.S. citizens had to prove that they were Caucasian. Uh, And it's almost funny when you look at some of these cases today, where they're trying to decide whether someone from Egypt was white or whether they were they were not white, or whether someone from Japan, or this other country, was white or whether or were they not white? Or, and as you mentioned, the uh, they they did decide that the guy from from Turkey was white enough to be white, uh, but you have this insane period of of, of where because U.S. Uh, naturalization laws only allowed at that point whites and blacks, you know, to become citizens. And then you had this nonsense of people trying to prove that they were white. But in addition, you had the Immigration Act, you know, and beginning in 1920, you know, they, you know, the Congress decided that they needed to make sure that they kept, for lack of a better phrase, um, American racial purity intact. Um, and so... They said, "Well, how do we do this, and without without being just blatantly discriminatory uh, in what we practice?" And what they decided was that they would try to keep the proportion of uh, different races exactly what it was at that current time. Um, moving forward, you know, and so, 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 so they had something called you know the National Origins Act, which basically. Set large quotas for Europeans, particularly Northern Europeans and Western Europeans, um, and very small quotas for others, in an attempt to keep the United States uh, racially what it had been, you know, in the earlier in an earlier period of time. Because there was their fear. They, they, I mean, one of the things you realize when you look at American history is there there has been this consistent fear of other people sort of taking over. And other people coming in and squeezing uh, whites out of their out of positions and whatnot, and that applied not only actually you know to what we now consider people of color, but they wanted to restrict you know immigrants also from Eastern Europe and immigrants from from you know Italy and some of the Southern European countries because these groups were considered inferior. Uh, so so there was a um, uh, several acts of Congress, the big the, the, the big ones, as I said, being in 1920 and 1924, um, to limit this. And, and it was supported by all kinds of scientific works, which came from eugenicists who claimed that the increasing population of Jews, the increasing population of people from Italy was lowering the U- United States' IQ and was lowering uh, the United States' uh, uh stock, um, and that that needed to be stopped.
0: And wasn't there also a political component? Didn't Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer target a series of raids from late 1919 to early 1920 that were aimed at immigrants who were presumed to have radical beliefs? They wanted to stamp out the red menace because uh, there had been the Soviet Revolution.
1: Sure. I mean, that's a legacy, you know, in, in a sense of the, uh, the First World War. I mean, you had, you had many immigrants who were, who were um, basically wanting to come to the United States. And the Attorney General Palmer, uh, who, was, who was notorious at the time, I mean, he was actually became a candidate for president the popularity of what became known as the Palmer Raids. I mean he was he was uh especially interested in in keeping you know russians or bolsheviks out um but but italians as well and, and other immigrants you know and he can con- he conducted raids and particularly in 1919 was a big year you know where he arrested tens of thousands of people rounded them up essentially for no other crime than being immigrants
0: and and the uh, and the, uh... The rhetoric was kind of inflammatory. In 1920, didn't Commissioner of Immigration, Frederick A. Wallace, suggest that a constitutional amendment might be needed to, quote, keep European rabble out? This is all during the Wilson administration? Yeah. Now, uh, we should remember that Wilson uh, <laughs> resegregated Washington, D.C.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, Wilson was highly educated and a former president of Princeton, but he was not— racially enlightened you know put it that way um but yeah i mean there was a lot of fear which came out of a combination of things but it, but it, it sort of some of it stemmed from the war some of it stemmed as you mentioned from from the russian revolution and some of it stemmed from the resurgence of um the science uh of eugenics which had basically just concluded that there were certain groups that were just inferior. There's nothing actually to do with Blacks, that like Blacks were already considered inferior, but they were classifying um, European groups as inferior. And there was this desire to, to keep them out. Uh, and, you, and you have to realize it's just going on against um, another series of uh, disruptions. I mean, some of, the, some of the worst race riots in American history happened in 1919 as well. Um, largely as a result of uh, American soldiers, Black soldiers who who have come back mm. and uh, were sort of asking for equality, and there were a, a series of of of, uh, of race riots across the country to sort of make sure that that didn't happen. So so it was it was another time we and we periodically go through these. It was another time where we, meaning Americans really, really were in great fear of what foreign people coming over would mean, or, in, or also of what black people rising up would mean for this society. And, and so there was, a, uh, there, there was this retrenchment and this need to sort of look inward and say, okay, we wanna shut down our doors and keep out um, the inferior races of Europe uh, and the Bolsheviks and the anarchists and any other people who we think might threaten our society.
0: Was the fact that America became a superpower uh, between the two world wars uh, a factor? A, a different attitude about our place in the world?
1: I'm not, I'm not sure it was a factor in why we wanted to keep people out. It was, it was certainly a factor in explaining the American role at that time, because America wanted to wanted to portray itself. As a land of freedom, as a land of equality, as a land of opportunity, and foreign nations and and other people internally um, made much mischief out of this because the, because the, the very idea of America trying to promote itself that way um, was um, problematic uh, at at the best, and that continued into World War II. I mean, when when uh, a Philip Randolph. Uh, threatened a huge march on Washington because the uh, military was was still segregated and because the military services and and the defense industries were not hiring you know people of color um, and so and part of what they use you know as as their uh, wedge in, in in this argument was how can we fight you know a war for equality how can we fight Nazis and have jim Crow at home? Mm-hmm.
0: Now, wasn't there also uh, violence? Weren't bombs sent to public officials through the mail uh, near the end of uh, after World War One?
1: Yeah, uh, and, and and what reasons that did the
0: part- bombers give for doing that?
1: Um, they were connected with. Uh, apparently, you know, connected with radical groups. I mean, they never got to the bottom of some of, these, of many of these. Some of them were were directly connected to radical groups. Um, but yes, there there were a series of bombings, you know, in, in 1920, yeah, you know, which uh, seemed to originate from, you know, groups who wanted to disrupt America. And, and they and, and this gave a lot of impetus um, to the um, to the move to limit um, immigration.
0: My guess is Ellis Coase, whose latest book is Race and Reckoning From Founding Fathers to Today's Disruptors from Amistad. That's a, a division of, of HarperCollins. Yes. Uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I've always wondered. Why many Japanese Americans were put into internment camps during World War Two, but not German Americans. Ha, huh, yeah. Um would would we say that that is just blatant racism?
1: I think you could fairly call it that, yes. I mean the fact of the matter was that the Japanese were considered foreigners, and and, and and Germans and Italians, even though they were also uh, enemies of the state, were considered, you know, very much the same way that other white Americans were considered. And so, and it was compounded because of the, of the other raid, um, Pearl Harbor in forty one, which of course came from Japan. So, and it was also compounded by the fact that many Asian-Americans at that point lived on the West Coast, <coughs> lived on the West Coast, you know, and so it was easier to sort of, I mean, one, you know, they became an immediate target. Uh, and the idea was that, you know, that these Japanese-Americans and Japanese who were living in America on the West Coast had somehow helped facilitate the Pearl Harbor attack and that they were going to be a continuing fifth column, you know, helping the Japanese. Um, and because they were easy to se- to segregate, easy to separate, um, the decision, and, and, and you had a, you know, a, a, a administration, uh, which was frankly sort of racist, you know, and they decided that um, the way to deal with the Japanese.
0: What, FDR's was- administration was frankly racist?
1: Well, the general who was leading, who was in charge of the military on the West Coast was, uh-huh. you know, and, and there was a, and, and, and he based, and, and he just didn't trust Japanese. He didn't believe that they would have ever truly assimilated into becoming Americans. And and the there were hearings on the Hill. Politicians on the West Coast were saying the same thing. You had mayors, you had uh, congressmen who were very much afraid of um, the, the Japanese threat, and and made arguments. You, you, you had um, the Un-American Activities Committee, you know, which which is which essentially was finding um, harms or or, 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 or or discovering things that that these uh, Japanese Americans had supposedly done. None of none of which were really or were ever verified, um, but. Hysteria was created and it's and and particularly when you were at it and when doing a time of war, when the country is on Tinder hooks anyway, uh, if you want to get people really riled up, uh, point to a group that you can call the enemy Um, and Japanese war and are a convenient target for that no I al- think
0: mm-hmm. uh, moving on to another subject because we're almost out of time although people of color served in the US military weren't many of them denied the right to vote when they returned uh, which led to protests how was that resolved or was it ever really hundred percent resolved?
1: Um, it wasn't resolved until um, the Voting Rights Act, mm-hmm. you know, passed in '65. To tell you the truth.
0: So, in the '60s, we suddenly we were started allowing Asians to come into the country, which we passed the uh, the, the voting rights act. Also, the, there was the Civil Rights Act that was passed. Uh, well, there
1: was a Voting Rights Act in '65 that was also passed. Yeah, you know, uh, and 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 that and that eliminated the the clear racial bars. Mm. Uh, to immigration and yeah you know, and um instead of um the, the the former um philosophy which guided immigration which was you were gonna you wanted to replicate the people that were already here by just allowing the same proportion of people to come uh, natural origins is what it was called um they decided they were gonna use family reunification as a basis, uh, as a large part of the basis for allowing people to come. And now there was a certain naivety attached to that on the part of the Congress, because at the time Congress sort of basically said, well, given the composition of this country, uh, the people who are gonna come are still gonna be overwhelmingly white. but that changed, uh, and it changed in part because uh, because refugees came from other countries, and they can they could reun- they reunify reunify uh, under the new immigration laws as well. But yes, we, we we passed immigration laws in '65 that were supposed to finally um, eliminate. It all our racial discrimination in terms of who we allowed into this country.
0: Are things changing? For, uh, it, it was my sense that the fact that so many of the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th were white nationalists were were kind of acts of desperation, feeling that they uh, were losing a battle. And then we just recently, uh, more harsh sentences were passed down on Derek Um is that an indication that things may be changing somewhat?
1: Well, I think things are constantly changing, Leonard. but I, but I think there are also we tend to underestimate how strong that undercurrent of racial anxiety is in this country. I think I think uh, I, I think you're finally seeing the emergence, particularly among younger people. Of a generation of people who truly believe in the vision of a multiracial, ethnic society, I think that among a lot of people, and again, you know, particularly among people who are who are older, um, there's fear of that. Um, there's fear that uh, that that will mean you know the great replacement, to use the current theory, and, and that's in play. That 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 uh, their way of life will be gone forever and that America would be diminished i mean that was a large part i mean whenever there's an action there's a reaction you know and part of the reaction you know to the obama presidency was the trump presidency Um, there were people who suddenly decided, well, maybe things have gone too far. Although Trump did not
0: get the majority of the the vote. He did get, to some degree, all of this is aided by the fact that we continue to have uh, the Electoral College and other
1: things that are slightly
0: anti-democratic. Well, not slightly anti-democratic. And the filibuster—
1: they're they're greatly anti-democratic i mean and but and and that's also part of the discussion that i have in my book because you know you don't need a majority uh in favor of something for it to become u.s policy these days you know you only need um a determined minority and you know i mean i mean just just one sort of sort of statistical example
0: you got to do it quickly because we're kind of out of time but go ahead okay
1: well when 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 the country came into existence Uh, The largest state was Virginia. It was nine times the size of Delaware, 12 times if you include the, the slaves. Now the largest state, California, is 67 times the size of Wyoming. That gives hugely disproportionate power to people from smaller states, sure. you know, And so, and so, and so, you now have, and, and 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 that translates into the electoral college, it translates directly into the Senate, it translates into who appoints um, judges or who approves judges. So you have, a, so you have a very unrepresentative government, and that I think is very dangerous. But that allows a minority to dictate, to dictate what happens in this country. So I think yes, you're right that society is changing, and I think a majority of Americans at this point are really quite enlightened. But you have a determined minority that is not, and that is and that is shaken, that is afraid, uh, and that worries that um, this new way is not the way America should be going.
0: Ellis Coase has been my guest today. His latest book, uh, he's the author of a dozen books, including the best-selling Rage of a Privileged Class. But the one we've been discussing, his newest, is Race and Reckoning from Founding... Fathers to Today's Disruptors from Amistad, and a reminder that when he was just 19, he had a column, the Chicago Sun-Times, and since then has written for the Detroit Free Press, the USA Today, um, the the New York Daily News, Newsweek, uh, and has been a guest on our show a number of times. I thank you so much for being such a great guest. It's a real pleasure talking Uh with you.
1: Thank you for having me, Leonard. It's been it's been wonderful.
0: And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else. You get your podcast. If you want to check out some of our other interviews with Ellis Coast, they're all available as podcasts. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. This show won't be on the air during the the rest of the week. WBAI will be rebroadcasting the next hearing of the January 6th committee tomorrow. And on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, WBAI will be off the air for routine maintenance at the site, which houses our transmitter at four times square. And we hope that you'll help us pay for the rent on that space, which costs WBAI over $17,000 a month. If you can, please go to towerfund.com. .wbai.org and do- donate whatever you can, twenty five fifty hundred five hundred thousand dollars $500,000, whatever amount uh, you can to help. Or you can call 212 209 2950 and say you want to make a donation to the Tower Fund. As I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Thopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing Race and Reckoning from Founding Fathers to Today's Disruptors by Ellis Coase. Uh, you might also consider becoming a sustaining member what we call a BAI buddy, and we'll say thanks uh, with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who becomes a a BAI buddy for $10 or more a month. But whatever you choose, I hope you can call right now. BAI relies totally on listener donations. We're the only station in the New York radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored. And we'll see you next week.